Welcome to The Testament, a podcast that spotlights the amazing real-life stories of everyday people who've been transformed by their surrender to Jesus Christ. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of one of the many miraculous before and after accounts of lives forever changed by encountering the Savior. Well, one of my, one of my favorite stories when I was on the trial bench uh, jury selection was my favorite thing in the world because you just literally did not know what was going to come out of people's mouths at times. Um, you didn't <laughs> know imagine. exactly what questions were going to be asked, and you really didn't know the answers. But I always, uh, I always gave people an opportunity to tell me if there was something about their circumstances that I needed to know about that may make it be make that might make it difficult for them to serve on a jury because mm. a lot of people you know somebody has a bad back and sitting for long periods of time might be a problem uh, we at one one point in time we had a pregnant lady who didn't tell us and she ended up on the jury oh. you know but of course you've got to be careful about asking you know how mm-hmm. many of y'all are pregnant because some people might get offended by that type of thing it wouldn't it was simply a question about your condition so I always sure. kept it in terms of general condition well one of my favorite stories is I, I asked that. I said, is there any reason, do you have a physical condition, medical circumstances, anything that make it may make it more difficult for you to you know, sit on this particular jury? And I also included a, a, an instruction talking about, you know, um, um, if there's something, if you have an answer to a question mm. that you really don't want to share with 40 some odd other people who right. you've never met before, right. then you can you can tell me about it. You don't have to answer it right then. I do need an answer. You're required to answer me. But you can raise your hand and simply say, I need to tell you about that judge. Or if, for example, it's a question about how many of you have ever been convicted of child abuse, you know, and if you raise your hand and say, Judge, I need to talk to you about it, you pretty much have answered the question yeah. at that point in time. <laughs> and I used that example, and I'd said, or you can just go over to my, my bailiff, Officer Wilburn, and tell her at the break, we'll take a break for a restroom or whatever, and just tell her you need to talk to me. You do not have to tell her what it's about, what question it's in response to, anything like Just say, I need to talk to you about it. And that way we can keep things that you want confidential, confidential. Right. But we need to know them just to make sure that you're an appropriate fit for this particular jury. Mm-hmm. So I asked that question about any medical or any other reason, da-da-da. An older gentleman, I'd guess he was probably in his late 60s, uh, uh, gets this kind of a grin on his face. And he's like in the middle row, in the middle. And he raises his hand and he goes, Judge, and I said, yes, sir. And he goes, Judge, I just need to inform you that I suffer from irritable bowel syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) And I looked at him and I'm like, well, sir, that's kind of what I was talking about if you wanted to keep something confidential. (laughs) And 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 I embellished the story a little bit by saying there were two ladies on both sides of him who kind of looked at him like, well, that explains it, you know, kind of thing. But it's an example of uh, why jury selection is so much fun in many yeah. respects is because you get, you, he was clearly a character. He clearly was doing it because he just kind of wanted to see what the reaction <laughs> yeah. was going to be. And uh, and so, 
you know, that, that's one of my favorite stories, irritable bowel syndrome. I had to go look that up, you know. <laughs> so. so did he make the jury? No, he didn't. He didn't. I think it was. I think it was the fact that he was smiling the entire time he was telling everybody this. That uh, the the attorneys were like, you know, he's just too happy about being a, cantank- yeah, a cantankerous this, old man. This so, may not go well. May not go well. So let's just leave him off the jury for right now. That's awesome. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Testament. My name is Jeff Keck, and I am the host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Wade Birdwell. He is a judge on the Texas Court of Appeals. Thank you for coming, sir. Well, I'm glad to be here. Tell me about yourself. Well, as you indicated, I'm a justice on the uh, second Court of Appeals. Now, let me stop you there. The official term is justice, right? The official term is justice. So when I say judge, is that that like an offensive? No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, I I think I knew that, and I just forgot to say justice. You know, I was watching watching a case that I had an interest in being argued at the Supreme Court of Texas the other day, and one of the attorneys was making a point to address each of the justices on the Supreme Court. Now, the the Supreme Court, they're all justices. Right. Okay? The Court of Criminal Appeals, which is the highest court for criminal matters, Mm -hmm. are judges. Okay? Okay. The... The judges for the courts of appeals are referred to as justices, mm. and then all the trial court judges are referred to as judges. So it's very easy to get mixed yeah, up into what, yeah. which one, which one you're addressing, type of thing. Well, anyway, this 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 attorney was arguing, and he was literally saying, Chief Justice Hecht, and and uh, you know, naming each person he was answering the question or referring to, and I'm like. You know, when I did oral arguments, I never did anything like that because I'm horrible with names. Yeah. So I was just, Your Honor. Your Honor. That's all <laughs> I would do is say, Your there Honor, you let me answer your question, or Your Honor this, or Your Honor that. That's always the safe play. Yeah. Judge is always the safe play. Okay. So it, anyway, so, te- so my technical, my technical, my legal title is Justice. Gotcha. Second Court of Appeals. Uh, for the state of Texas, there are 14 court of appeals districts. This one is Fort Worth. There are 12 counties going up to Wichita Falls, out to Graham and Young County. Mm. It includes Hood County and Granbury, Parker County uh, and uh, Weatherford. But it stops Tarrant and Denton and doesn't go over into Dallas, right. into Dallas County. So um, we've got 12 counties. Um, there are seven members of the court, one chief justice, and six justices. Mm. And I'm one of them, and I have been since November of 2017. Before that, I was a district judge, a district court judge, a civil district court judge, which meant I heard only cases involving damages, that type of thing. Right. I didn't hear any criminal matters. I didn't hear any family matters. I didn't hear any probate matters. And the court I was on was a 342nd district court whose jurisdiction was Tarrant County. Mm. And I was there from July of 2010 to November of 2017. So I've been on the a bench, whether it's the trial bench or the appellate bench, for a little over 10 years. Okay. Um, I am married. My wife, uh, Liz, is uh, a retired retired from public schools. She was uh, head of curriculum, direct, executive director for curriculum at Duncanville ISD. She now uh, is uh, in the administration uh, of Pantego Christian mm. in, in, here in Pantego. Um, 
I've got two children, both adopted from Russia. Nice. Uh, Alexandra, we adopted from Krasnodar. And if you know where Krasnodar is, then you're, you have much better uh, geographic knowledge than the vast majority of people. <laughs> but if you knew it was a city of over half a million, you would be even better. Uh, we, when we adopted her in 98, she was born in 97, we adopted her with about nine months in 98. Uh, we stayed in the only hotel in a city of a half of half a million people that had air conditioning, and the air conditioning mm. was only in the restaurant. Mm. So uh, to say that sleeping with the my wife and daughter basically slept on the balcony because that was where it was coolest mm. of the uh, hotel room uh, that was that was miserable. But anyway, so. She's adopted from Krasnodar. She's now a fifth-year senior about to graduate from A&M, which means I failed as a father being a TSIP. <laughs> uh, no, actually, she, she's had a great experience at A&M, and, uh, and uh, I'm very proud of her. She's going to graduate and do very well in education. She'll be a teacher, probably elementary. My son, uh, Nicholas, we adopted in 2003 from Moscow, mm. and uh, uh, he is a, a freshman at the University of Texas in Austin right now, so I'm batting 500. Yeah. He's actually living in my old dorm room. Oh, really? My wow. sophomore dorm room, uh, and uh, so I've got pictures of that, which is just some of my friends from college are like, wow, did you guys pick that out? And I'm like, no, it's completely random. Wow. He's studying architectural engineering, and uh, you know he's a pretty good baseball player, pretty good football player, um, but uh, he has a very dry sense of humor, shall we say? <laughs> so, um, so we've been blessed with both of them, and uh, my my uh, brother is Senator Brian Birdwell. He is the state senator for Senate District Twenty Two. Mm. He ended up being elected uh, about a week before I was selected to be uh, the judge for the 342nd District mm. Court by the uh, Executive Committee here in Tarrant County. He was elected in a special election for Senate District 22, which uh, its major city is uh, Waco, McClendon County. Right. Right. Uh, he lives in Granbury, which is also part of his district. Between the two of us, we cover about 20 Texas counties, <laughs> yeah. and the and the interesting thing is, is that my mom and dad met at Graham High hmm. way back in the day, and Graham is part of my jurisdiction because wow. Young County is part of the the Second Court of Appeals district. Right. So some sometimes you're kind of like, okay, how did we get here? <laughs> type yeah, thing. I was absolutely. I was I was born in Fort Worth, but my. Uh, my roots go back to to Graham and Bry actually Bryson's in Jack County, and there's some there's some Birdwells around there. So good. Anyway, good. well, I'm glad to be a part of the adoption family. I have two adopted kids myself, uh, four two bio kids, and then I have two adopted kids. One of them is from Uganda, so I'm in the same boat as you. I say, hey, you know, how many people know where Kampala is? How many people know where the village? I at least have heard of Kampala. Yeah, how many yeah. people? How many people? Well, that's the capital city. So, yeah. but how many people have heard of the village of Bufumansoa? You know, no, yeah. that would not be something. Not I really. Would know. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, 
No, so that's that's very good. That's awesome. Um, what this show is all about is lives changed through Jesus Christ. And so if you would give me a, an, an idea of kind of what life was like prior to you knowing who Jesus is and then how you came to know who Jesus is and then, uh, you know, what kind of changes in your life have, have become um, possible through Jesus since then? Well, um, I am a, a Christian uh, in large part, if, if not completely, because of my mother. Um, she, uh, uh, she was, she and my father married in the fifties. My, my father was not a particularly religious man. Mm. And, uh, at the time my mom was church of Christ mm -hmm. and her mother, my grandmother sang in the choir at one of the church of Christ, uh, churches in Graham. Yeah. Uh, my grandmother was a she did laundry and she babysat yeah okay my mother's father was an itinerant miller hmm. who had uh according to my mom so some of this family history is like okay you know i'm going by a family type yeah. stuff yeah who had supposedly flown with billy mitchell uh not exactly sure when hmm. i don't know if i don't think he did it in world war one but maybe sometime after hmm. He was a uh, air photographer, but then he became an itinerant miller. Um, uh, the house they lived in was just minuscule. It's, it's smaller, smaller in this room probably. Hmm. Um, my dad's uh, father, who I never knew because he died before I was born, was a barber. He was one of five brothers, the Birdwell brothers of Bryson, Texas, and uh, he was a barber. His name was Otha, and um, my uh, my dad was the youngest of three children. His older brother uh, J.W., uh, who I knew of as Uncle Bud, yeah. his name was actually J. Period W. Period. That's on his birth certificate. That's <laughs> that's how he is listed in. Uh, uh, in a report that was done on the liberation of Dachau. Hmm. He was there when uh, Dachau was liberated and he was actually uh, one of the witnesses, but he didn't he didn't actually testify to whether or not, you know, there were some uh, goings on there in terms of uh, surrender and hmm. whether the certain German soldiers were allowed to surrender, that type of thing, which was kind of interesting. I came across that many years ago and uh, the um, but I, he had always, my father had always said he was, he was one of like the second guy through the gate at Dachau. Mm. And I finally figured out that that wasn't the actual concentration camp. It was the gate into what was a much larger, uh, training camp for the SS right. within which Dachau was. Wow. And so, um, to say that his service in the military, uh, affected him emotionally would be, a understatement. Yeah, absolutely. He he um, saw some stuff. There was some fighting in a place called Reapersville and uh, Aschaffenburg. Just some really nasty fighting that he went through. He was actually there. You know the. We figured this out. I didn't actually get to talk to him about it, uh, but we I figured this out. You know the the famous picture 
of that massive concrete swastika over the Nuremberg Stadium yeah. getting blown up. Right, yeah. He was actually in Nuremberg when that happened. Mm. And then his unit uh, was sent down toward Dachau, toward Munich. They were sent to Munich, and Dachau is a suburb of Munich. And that's how they ended up uh, finding uh, the train of uh, like 3,900 bodies. Yeah. It was, it, mm. or no way, it was no, 2,300 bodies, but at mm. 39 train deals. I mean, so uh, I've had an interesting family. Yeah. Um, and uh, getting to your question, and, and this is where you're supposed to be kicking me under the table, cause, <laughs> which is what my wife normally does, which is why my shins are you know, perpetually bruised. Get on with it, get to the point. Um, my mom... Uh, we attended an Assembly of, church, uh, Assembly of God Church uh -huh. in North Richland Hills, North Richland Hills Assembly. Uh, Brother Barnes was the pastor. He later became Dean of Students at Southwestern in Waxahachie. Um, this was after my parents divorced. While we were there, my mother met my soon-to-be stepfather, Patrick Reeves, and uh, we ended up moving to Austin for a year. He was a teacher who did some assistant professorship stuff for the University of Texas at Austin, which is why I've always been a Longhorn fan. Mm. Then we moved out to California, Stockton, California, for seven years because he had some family out there. My His, his mother, my grandmother, was out there. And then we moved back to Texas where I went to high school in Beaumont at what was then known as Forest Park High School and then uh, became, after uh, uh, integrating with Hebert High School, became, um, uh, I've gone blank. It's not Forest Park, it's, oh, I've gone blank, I can't. They, it was really weird. They integrated, Hebert had just an incredible football team. We had a horrible football team. <laughs> after they integrated, though, literally the first year they integrated, um, they won the state title oh, wow. in football because mm -hmm. it, it, was, it was just amazing. Um, it was kind of funny because my mom had taught at uh, Hearst Bell. Yeah. And when before she remarried, she was teaching at Hearst Bell. We lived in Haltom City. And uh, that championship was uh, Beaumont versus Hearst Bell. So <laughs> she couldn't actually lose during yeah. the championship game. It was kind of interesting. So. Um, she kept us in church. My stepfather was a ordained minister who had studied Greek and got a degree in Greek from mm. the Southern Bible in Houston. Um, I can't really tell you there was a moment type of thing. Mm. If there is a moment, the first time I literally walked down to commit, mm. it was a James Robison crusade. Yeah. In Stockton, California, wow. where we went, you know, we went and I walked down. I think Brian walked down with me. I maybe was nine, ten. Yeah. Brian was, you know, seven, eight, something like that. But, you know, we always attended church. I've always uh, been encouraged by my mother and my stepfather to study the Bible. Um, Having my stepfather, he was just an incredible biblical resource. Um, so I can't really say that, you know, this is when I hit rock bottom. Sure, and, yeah. And God just reached down and grabbed me and 
saved me type of thing. I'm more of a guy who's been in the church my entire life. But I've had many instances where you can go, yeah, there God was in the details in that mm-hmm. type of thing. And uh, um, we attended uh, Cathedral in the Pines, which was an Assemblies of God in Beaumont, Coffee with Pastor Dabney, mm. if anybody down in Beaumont would know that. Pastor Dabney had actually been our pastor in Stockton, and then he'd moved to Beaumont on my stepfather's recommendation. And so it was kind of, it's amazing where you end up circling back with people that you would not think you're going to have a connection with at any point in time in the future. You think you're saying goodbye, and then what God has done is he's actually sent them ahead mm. to set things up for you when you get there kind oh, of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that was an instance of that. Um, so uh, I've basically been a Christian all of my life and uh, have been fighting obedience issues all of my life. I, yeah, think, I think we were, we, yeah, we were talking earlier about my favorite scripture, and I may be jumping ahead here, but... Uh, my favorite scriptures are basically Romans 7 and Romans 8. Mm. Romans 7, because it Paul so describes me because he talks about that which I want to do, I seem never to do. That which I, I uh, don't want to do, I seem always to do. In right. other words, he's constantly in a state of disobedience. But thank the Lord for Romans 8, which is who can separate me from the love of yeah, that's right. And so um, uh, we were talking a little bit about, I've been talking to my son about Peter mm. a little bit, talking about the fact that here is a guy, you know, we always want to think that somehow we would do something differently. Right. You know, uh, when they came to arrest Jesus, you know, I, I would step forward and yeah. I would make sure they didn't do that type of thing or I wouldn't betray God you know I wouldn't betray Jesus or I wouldn't do this and that type of thing and uh, so here you're 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 taking a look at Peter and I take I take uh, great comfort from this because here's a guy who's one of the first called by Jesus to be a disciple he sees virtually every miracle if not every miracle that Jesus performs during his ministry, which includes the the loaves and fishes, which includes raising Lazarus from the dead, which which includes healing innumerable people, which includes uh, casting out demons, which includes, I mean, just any of the vast number of miracles attributable to Christ. He was there, Mm -hmm. he was an eyewitness to it. And of course, one of the most uh, miraculous things was Jesus walking on the water and Peter saying, call me to you. And Jesus does and he steps out onto the water and Mm -hmm. guess what he does for quite some time? He walks on the water. If you ask people, you know, how many people walked on the water, most people would remember Jesus, but most people don't remember that Peter actually did in fact walk on the water based upon his faith until he started paying a little bit too much attention to how bad the storm really was and how mm-hmm. choppy the waves were, etc. And when he took his focus off of Christ, 
he started to sink. Right. And Christ confirmed that by saying, oh, ye of little faith. Mm. Okay. Now, this is a guy who's seen all of these miracles. And this is a guy who Jesus has specifically said, this is the rock upon which I will build my church. But Jesus also tells him, you're going to betray me three times before mm-hmm. the cock grows. And he adamantly denies it. Right. And then he does it. Okay. This is, this is not some guy who's just been in the audience listening to That's the right. Sermon on yeah. the Mount. Okay. This is a guy who saw it happen. Mm-hmm. He knew who Jesus was. And he still failed him. Mm. But even though he failed him, he did, in fact, become the rock upon which the church was built. That's right. Even though he still was cantankerous after that, even though he's still <laughs> yeah. fighting with God about unclean animals, you know, whether you can eat unclean animals or not later on, you know, yeah. whether you can go to the Gentiles or not, he's still fighting that type of battle. And you're just like, and so in talking to my son about it, it's like, don't get focused on your failures. That's the whole point to the gospel. Okay, Pope John Paul II, in his book, uh, Crossing the Threshold of Hope, said something at the very beginning of the book, which I found to be profound, which is that the entire message of the gospel is be not afraid. Mm. Okay, And when I, when I meditated on that to a certain extent and considered that, that's when we have a tendency to separate ourselves from God and to disobey, to sin. And you think about it, uh, you think about it, um, that's evidenced in the garden story in Genesis. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The uh, Satan, you know, we, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. And definitely Adam and Eve feared the Lord, you know, in although perfectly created in the garden. But Satan was able to take that fear and manipulate it into a fear of God is hiding something from us, he's withholding something from us. If we only eat the fruit, we will be like God somehow. So mm. so a righteous fear of wisdom, you know was turned into a fear of something's being held from me, okay? Right. And so Eve sins, and I'm going to get in trouble here because this is one of my favorite deal, is when Eve extends the apple to or the fruit to Adam, it was the first known opportunity for a husband to determine, ask the question, how much is no going to cost me? <laughs> <laughs> And he clearly failed under the circumstances. So, you know, um, and, and I make light of it, but it really points, makes the point is that, uh, is that Eve is making this offer. She didn't drop dead. So the doubt is there. So the manipulation of Satan and mm-hmm. Eve ends up manipulating Adam. They both fail the test. Yeah. And what I always thought was very interesting, and I never really understood stood it until after reading the Crossing the Threshold of Hope, and even though the Pope John Paul II doesn't actually talk about this, is why is it that once Adam and Eve 
eat of the fruit, their first conscious thought is that, oh, wait a minute, I'm naked. Mm. And I think when you, when you contemplate that, what it is is they, at that point in time, understood their own vulnerability and they, they, had, they, they engaged at that point in time in a new form of fear, not mm. the fear of God, but the just fear of their circumstances. Yeah. And that is what has led to sin. And what I, in my own life, when I find myself in an act, act of disobedience, a lot of times I'll sit back and go, okay, what is it that I'm actually afraid of here? And if you, and you ask that question, and then I think a lot of times you can figure out that's exactly mm-hmm. why you're doing what you're doing. If you're, if you're someone who is addicted to drugs or you are addicted to whatever, and you're trying to medicate pain out of your life and you're trying to medicate fear, that's what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. You're trying to medicate fear out of your life and, and, uh, and uh, and I think that is is the is the root of most disobedience. And then going back to the Peter example, Peter's yeah. like, I you know, I mm. can't mm. eat unclean, you know, unclean animals because I've been I've been told that that's a bad thing to do. You right. know, I'm afraid of that kind of thing. And and uh, the Lord is no, what I've clean what I've cleansed is cleansed. Mm. And making that point, you know, type of thing. There's no reason to be afraid. Going back to the Annunciation, you know, yeah. of who is born this day. And with regard to disobedience, I mean, if you look at, like we were talking about earlier, if you look at the entire lineage of Christ, so Christ, the perfect Son of God, comes to Earth through a lineage of unclean, sinful people, right? But mm-hmm. they're forgiven of their sins, you know, uh, they're, you know, David, man after God's own heart. Um, and look what he did, right? And, and it just goes on and the lineage goes all the way up through. And so we, I think, as human beings um, have that selfish desire sometimes to serve ourselves and not to serve the Lord. And so, um, you know, I talked to a lot of people who are, are saved at very young ages, but then they'll drop off at some point to a, a backsliding position mm-hmm. where they may you know, engage in activities that are not Christian activities for several years before before God finally hits them and says it's time to wake up again. Right? Well, think so, about think about it. If you're in a if you're in a Christian home as a child, okay, you generally there's not a great amount of things that you have to fear other than maybe your brother leaving something nasty under your pillow right, or something. Yeah, yeah. You know. So where does this backsliding ordinarily occur? It usually occurs somewhere in the transition from child to adult, mm-hmm. from from mm-hmm. adolescent to adult. Yep. When all of a sudden, as an adult, you are now in a position to understand, I gotta work, I gotta <laughs> make a living, yeah. I gotta get yeah. a degree, I gotta do this because I'm gonna be on my own here. And so that it's a point in time where the introduction of fears that you normally have had resolved by your parents, you've been protected from by your parents. So that's where I think a lot of people end up, you know, they get caught up in the moment and then realize that later on, hopefully realize later on that, you know what, why did mom and dad manage to deal with these issues, you know? Mm-hmm. 
what was it about their faith, you know, that helped them deal with these issues? Right. And um, and that's really, uh, you know, I would say that's was kind of my experience. I did more rebellious stuff in high school and college, yeah. and then later on, it's like it wasn't mm-hmm. such a brilliant thing to do here yeah. and there. So you are in public service. Yes. Um, you are in a position like I am. I'm a, I've been in law enforcement for 21 years. Um, so we are we are both in positions where our careers depend upon um, being objective um, in the things that we do. So how has um, the fact that the Holy Spirit resides in your heart, um, how has that helped you in your career in public service and also in dealing with the various and diverse people that may come in before your court? Two questions. Okay. Um, I, I am not, I am not a, a Christian who begins my day with prayer and reading the Bible. I would be lying to you if that's, that's what I said I do. Mm. Okay. I don't uh, read briefs of, with regard to a particular case and then pray over them, that type of thing. And honestly, you know, I, I probably should. And this goes back to what does it mean to actually be obedient type right. of thing. But I have a uh, legal acumen that is God-given mm. and I think is spirit-informed um, because I'm really good at researching the law and I think a lot of my research is uh, assisted, if you will, um, by the Spirit. And I want to be careful about, you know, is, is, is a particular decision informed by my faith? Right. Okay? Yeah. And I would say no. It's, I, I don't sit down and go, Jesus how do you want me to rule on this mm. particular thing? Right. Okay. Um, my faith is more of a personal, how do I conduct myself in public? And that includes the professional, which is, do I conduct myself in a professional manner mm. that brings credit uh, to he whom my faith is in? Right. Okay. Um, I don't. I don't think it is helpful to give some kind of impression that somehow um, I'm just I'm turning my office at the courthouse into some type of little, you know, closet where I'm praying on a regular right. basis uh, because that's just that's that's not true. I mean, mm-hmm. I think there'd probably be a lot of people who'd say that you really need to do that. I'm not really in a position to gainsay them in yeah. that regard yeah. because we're to pray without ceasing. Sure. And we're not just to be praying about, you know, generally general things. We're to be praying about things that we have, you know, on a daily basis. That's but right. my my experience has been that when I am in a particular in a particular case where I am dealing with a particularly difficult issue, um, I just kind of let let uh, God lead me in that mm-hmm. regard. Yeah, you know, and um, and you're always if your faith is always informing you in terms of 
quite a bit of what we do is does that sound right? <laughs> does that does that seem just type of thing? And sometimes we can apply the law in a manner that you know this just doesn't this doesn't seem right, but this really is what the law is, and if it needs to be fixed, it needs to be fixed by the legislature. We're not in a position to unilaterally uh, change uh, that because that would be in interfering with the consent of the governed. The consent of the governed is directed to the legislature. Yeah. We're elected, so to a certain extent we have the consent of the governed, but our consent is to apply the law as the legislature uh, has uh, set it forth. Um, the other area is that I seem to end up with issues presented to me that I've had an interest in and that seem to um, kind of be in my wheelhouse. You know, it's mm -hmm. there's a comfort level, even if it's a difficult issue, this is, okay, this is probably one that God sent my way. I can, there are few cases that I can point to and say, you know, this is probably why I ended up on the Court of Appeals. Mm -hmm. um, you've got to be careful with acknowledging that type of thing, though, because you don't want, you, I represent as a justice on the Second Court of Appeals, everybody in all 12 counties that make up the Second That's Court right. of Appeals District, yeah. okay? whatever their faith, or whether they have none. That's right. Okay? And I am. that's what I'm called to, and that's what I've sworn to do. My oath is an oath that is to uphold the Constitution. Okay? Now, what's interesting about that is that, so, so there would be some who would say, your faith should not, in, in fact, any way, shape, or form, inform your professional duties. Mm. Okay? But that's actually anti-constitutional. Mm. And um, when I, uh, when I, uh, quite often I am asked to swear officers in, for example, like uh, uh, my uh, uh, Repu Republican club, say in Tarrant County, mm -hmm. you know, we need you to swear the officers in. Um, I've sworn other uh, officials in. You know, when you're a judge, you have that authority under the statutes to to swear people in. Right. Okay to take oaths. Attorneys, I swear, we, we regularly swear new attorneys in who are, have just passed the bar and are about to embark on their legal career. Mm -hmm. I have the authority to do that. In doing that, though, um, I oftentimes will talk about something that I think is very important, particularly in this day and age, uh, which is the importance of religious liberty to our form of government, mm -hmm. okay? And I ask what is, a, in fact, a trick question, which is, where in the Constitution is the first provision for religious liberty, to protect religious liberty? It's a trick question because the vast majority of people are going to go First Amendment, free exercise, right. yep. establishment clause. That's where it is. Okay? And the answer is no, that's not where it is. Mm. The first provision for religious liberty is actually related to the second and the third provisions. They're very similar, almost identical. The first provision, though, is in Article One, where the Senate has to be sworn in to hear a trial on impeachment of the president. And it says that the senators must 
by oath or affirmation confirm that they're going to apply the law correctly. Right. <clears throat> and it's that or affirmation part which is the actual provision for religious liberty. It's also in the formal uh, oath of the President of the United States mm -hmm. in Article 2 where it says, uh, I swear, and then in parentheses, or affirm, mm -hmm. okay? And then in Article 6, where there it was, is where the supremacy clause is, which all public officials, whether federal or state, have to swear to the supremacy of the federal constitution, uh, it requires those officials, including judges, to by oath or affirmation confirm the supremacy of the federal constitution. It's the affirmation part that is the protection for liberal, I mean not liberal, for uh, uh, religious liberty is what I meant. Um, because Quakers actually take Matthew 5 to heart, literally, where Jesus says, do not swear, you know, do, do not swear by uh, Jerusalem, do not swear by the, by the temple, mm -hmm. let your yes be yes, your no be no. Right. And so it is a tenet of the Quaker faith that you are not to swear oaths. And uh, so in order for a Quaker to be able to be president of the United States or be a senator who swears with regard to an impeachment trial or to be a judge at the state or the federal level or public official of any kind at the state or federal level swearing to the supremacy of the federal constitution, they had to create a means by which those individuals didn't have to swear, but they could affirm. Hmm. And that's why that language is in there, right. is to protect the religious liberty of individuals who took Matthew 5 in a particular way. Yeah, okay? wow. So people yeah. in Pennsylvania could, in fact, be public officials all the way up to the President of the United States. Yeah. Okay. Now, the irony of that is, is that the only Quaker who's ever been elected to the office of President was Richard Nixon. And I did go back and look on YouTube, and both, <laughs> both of his swearing-ins... He did not affirm. He swore. Huh. So anyway, maybe that should have told us something. But um, anyway, <laughs> anyway um, but there's one additional protection for religious liberty, and that is in uh, Article 6, after it says that judges and public officials have to swear by oath or after affirmation, have to uh, confirm the supremacy of the federal constitution, there's a proviso. It says, provided that there will be no religious test for public office mm, yeah. under the laws of the United States, period. Okay? Right. So in the organic constitution, before they ever amended it with the Bill of Rights, you have four instances where religious liberty was so important to the founders that they plugged it in right. in those instances. Yeah. Now, what's important about that is, and what I always tell people about is, when you compare our revolution to other similar revolutions, when you compare our revolution to the French Revolution or our revolution to the Russian Revolution or the, the Chinese Revolution, okay, 
the difference in our revolution and those revolutions is all three of those revolutions were anti-religious to their core, anti-clerical. The churches were, were persecuted by uh, the Jacobins in Paris, the Bolsheviks in, in Moscow, the, the Maoists in China, okay? Our Constitution and our revolution, as a matter of fact, had incorporated religious faith. Mm -hmm. There was room both for reason and revelation. Yeah. And our Constitution balances those to the point where you cannot prohibit somebody from being a public official in the United States based upon their faith. Right. Okay. So, um, so your faith is important. It's a means by which people can understand who you are and it may inform your decision, but you are still bound by your oath or affirmation mm -hmm. to the constitution and the laws of the United States. If you're for in, like in my instance, you're a judge. Okay. And so that's, that is a balance that you have to to, to be wary of. I can't put in a, an opinion, I'm going to rule this way because I was reading, you know, the 15th chapter of John last week and this is what God told me kind of thing. That's just not what I've committed to doing through my mm -hmm. oath, all right? Um, but I think that certain issues have come before me that my understanding has, including my faith, has informed to reach a just result. And um, so that's kind of how I see faith informing my professional duties. Yeah. And, but always being very careful to make, not make sure that I'm not, that that informing doesn't become mandating. Right. If you will. Yeah. So we are aware of, um, Satan on the attack against Christians, against religious liberty, against uh, freedoms that we enjoy today. Um, do you believe that there's a spiritual attack on those things right now? Um, I think that uh, religious liberty is remains an important aspect. In fact, for pretty much the reason I've told you, mm -hmm. Each of the revolutions that I've discussed that were anti-clerical, anti-religious to their core ended up being as bloody of, of revolutions as you could possibly have, right. okay? Um, the, the, the Jacobins in Paris were reason will be, uh, be all and end all type of thing. We, we do not inform our form of government by any reference to any type of revelation, faith revelation whatsoever. Same thing with regard to the Bolsheviks, same thing with regard to the Maoists. And quite literally in the last century you had, you know, tens if not hundreds of millions of people die uh, because those particular political ideologies um, could not even contemplate the possibility that revelation would, would play a part mm. in uh, the governance of man. Whereas our form of government does not, is not a theocracy. It does not mandate that we do what the Bible says, okay? But it accommodates 
our faith mm. so that our faith may inform our governance, but we have we're here from everybody. Yeah. So um, if you if you have a are of a particular faith, you know, if you're a Christian, how many denominations are we dealing with there? Okay. If you are a Muslim, you you have uh, different faith traditions there too. If you right. are Jewish, you have different de- different aspects of, of Jewish, you know. So I mean, you can't really just say that okay, it's going to be this particular faith and these particular tenets that we're going to follow. Mm-hmm. Okay, and there are quite you know in in terms of um, in terms of uh, in, t- in terms of what informs, you know, there, I'm not aware of any particular faith that thinks murder is a good thing. Correct. So, I mean, so, yeah. Yeah. so again, our form of government is a consensus government. It's the consent of the governed. Okay, that I consider to be probably the most important phrase in the Declaration of Independence. I I agree with Justice Thomas who says we should read the Constitution in light of the Declaration, okay? Mm. Because the principles elicited in the Declaration are what truly inform the Constitution, right. okay? So the idea that we are a, 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 a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, okay, is enshrined in the Declaration, and it is also enshrined in the Constitution. And mm. when we get to a point where we are no longer governing ourselves, then we create problems, Mm. okay? And one of the things that we do as judges is we're trying to discern what did the representatives of the people intend to do when they passed this particular legislation. And when we are challenged as to whether or not it met constitutional prerogatives, what was intended by the Constitution as it was ratified by the people under these circumstances. Because, for example, the Bill of Rights is basically a withdrawal of authority Hmm. from government. It basically says, we the people are not going to give ourselves the authority to uh, regulate speech. Right. Okay. We're not going to give ourselves the authority to regulate the right of association mm-hmm. or the right of the press. We're going to withdraw that from ourselves. And that in itself is, by ratification, an act of consensus. Okay. And that is an ultimate act of consensus that overrides, even if you end up having the entire legislature in, this, in Texas and the governor pass a bill that says, you know, nobody can. Uh, can preach on uh, can preach on, in a church on a Sunday in the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? That's incredible consensus with regard to the passage of that statute, but it gets overridden by the ratification of the First Amendment. Right. So that that was an exercise of authority that the people had withdrawn from themselves. Mm-hmm. So what we do quite often in interpreting statutes and interpreting the law is trying to figure out what it is exactly that was being authorized here or prohibited and whether or not in doing so the legislature and the governor had the had the authority based upon the Constitution to do that. All right. So um, Justice Wade Birdwell, Texas Court of Appeals, thank you so much for coming in here today and talking to me. I really enjoyed it. And like I think I told you earlier, 
I'm glad to be given the opportunity, but I'm glad you're the one controlling how much I talk because that's <laughs> that's one of the primary 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 uh, resume enhancers for judges is they like to hear the sound of their own voice. <laughs> so, and I must plead guilty to no, that. No, no, this is this was fantastic, and I, I I absolutely love the amount of knowledge that you brought in here. Um, uh, I I love and and I'm I'm, I'm guessing that uh, in in the world of judges and justices. You probably know it, more than the average person understands. There's probably more people on the judicial benches who are believers of Christ, also that uh, that maybe we don't even realize. Um, so I know that when you look at different um, government positions and stuff, you you tend to find out sometimes through the grapevine. Yeah, that he's a believer in Christ. You know, he's a follower of Christ. Um, and so I think there's a lot more of of believers out there in those positions that we may not have realized or may not have known about. And so I appreciate your time and I appreciate you coming and, and uh, talking with us about how Christ has, has helped you in your career in public service. So thanks for coming by. Enjoyed it greatly. Thank you. So folks, if you want to know more about Jesus and if you want to know more about um, how Christ can help you in your life, you can go to our website, shockwaveministries.com and click on the gospel message. There you will find what's called the Roman Road, which will lead you through salvation and also some other resources on that site as well. There's another tab there called the Testament. So if you click on that tab, it'll show you kind of what episodes are coming up and what episodes we've already had. And you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere that you get your podcasts. So thanks for joining us today. Bye. Thank you.